Section twenty of Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Luna. Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young by Jacob Abbott. Chapter fifteen The Imagination of Children. Part two. Personification of inanimate objects. It will at once occur to the mother that any inanimate object may be personified in this way and addressed as a living and intelligent being. Your child is sick, I will suppose, and is somewhat feverish and fretful. In adjusting his dress, you prick him a little with a pin, and the pain and annoyance acting on his morbid sensibilities bring out expressions of irritation and ill humor now you may if you please tell him that he must not be so impatient that you did not mean to hurt him that he must not mind a little prick and the like and you will meet with the ordinary success that attends such admonitions or in the spirit of the foregoing suggestions you may say did the pin prick you i'll catch the little rogue and hear what he has to say for himself ah here he is i've caught him I'll hold him fast, lie still in my lap, and we will hear what he has to say. Look up here, my little prickler, and tell me what your name is. My name is Pin. And your name is Pin, is it? How bright you are! How came you to be so bright? Oh, they brightened me when they made me. Indeed! And how did they make you? They made me in a machine in a machine that's very curious how did they make you in the machine tell us all about it they made me out of wire first the machine cut off a piece of the wire long enough to make me and then i was carried round to different parts of the machine to have different things done to me i went first to one part to get straightened don't you see how straight i am yes you are very straight indeed then I went to another part of the machine and had my head put on, and then I went to another part and had my point sharpened, and then I was polished and covered all over with a beautiful silvering to make me bright and white. And so on indefinitely. The mother may continue to talk as long as the child is interested, by letting the pin give an account of the various adventures that happened to it in the course of its life and finally call it to account for prickling a poor little sick child any mother can judge whether such a mode of treating the case or the more usual one of gravely exhorting the child to patience and good humour when sick is likely to be most effectual in soothing the nervous irritation of the little patient and restoring its mind to a condition of calmness and repose the mother who reads these suggestions in a cursory manner and contents herself with saying that they are very good, but makes no resolute and persevering effort to acquire for herself the ability to avail herself of them, will have no idea of the immense practical value of them as a means of aiding her in her work and promoting the happiness of her children. But if she will make the attempt, she will most certainly find enough encouragement in her first effort to induce her to persevere. She must, moreover, not only originate herself modes of amusing the imagination of her children, but must fall in with and aid those which they originate. If your little daughter is playing with her doll, 
look up from your work and say a few words to the doll or the child in a grave and serious manner assuming that the doll is a living and sentient being if your boy is playing horses in the garden while you are there attending to your flower ask him with all gravity what he values his horse at and whether he wishes to sell him ask him whether he ever bites or breaks out of his pasture and give him some advice about not driving him too fast uphill and not giving him oats when he is warm he will at once enter in such a conversation in the most serious manner and the pleasure of the play will be greatly increased by your joining with him in maintaining the illusion there is a little more important advantage than the temporary increase to your children's happiness by acting on this principle by thus joining with them even for a few moments in their play you establish a closer bond of sympathy between your own heart and theirs and attach them to you more strongly than you can do by any other means indeed in many cases the most important moral lesson can be conveyed in connection with these illusions of children and in a way not only more agreeable but far more effective than by any other method influence without claim to authority acting through the imagination of children if the art of doing so is once understood will prove at once an invaluable and an inexhaustible resource for all those classes of persons who are placed in situations requiring them to exercise an influence over children without having any proper authority over them such for example as uncles and aunts older brothers and sisters and even visitors residing more or less permanently in a family and desirous from a wish to do good of promoting the welfare and the improvement of the younger members of it it often happens that such a visitor without any actual right of authority acquires a greater influence over the minds of the children than the parents themselves and many a mother who with all her threatenings and scoldings and even punishments cannot make herself obeyed is surprised that the absolute ascendancy which some inmate residing in the family acquires over them by means so silent gentle and unpretending that they seem mysterious and almost magical what is the secret of it asks the mother sometimes in such a case you never punish the children and you never scold them and yet they obey you at a great deal more readily and certainly than they obey me there are a great many different means which may be employed in combination with each other for acquiring this kind of ascendancy and among them the use which may be made of the power of the imagination in the young is one of the most important the intermediation of the dolls again a young teacher for example in returning from school some day finds the children of the family in which she resides who have been playing with their dolls in the yard engaged in some angry dispute the first impulse with many persons in such a case might be to sit down with the children upon the seat where they were playing and remonstrate with them though in a very kind and gentle manner on the wrongfulness and folly of such disputings to show them that the thing in question is not worth disputing about that angry feelings are uncomfortable and unhappy feelings and that it is consequently not only a sin but a folly to indulge in them now such a remonstrance if given in a kind and gentle manner will undoubtedly do good the children will be somewhat less likely to become involved in such a dispute immediately after it than before and in process of time 
and through many repetitions of such counsels, the fault may be gradually cured. Still, at the time, it will make the children uncomfortable by producing in their minds a certain degree of irritation. They will be very apt to listen in silence, and with a morose and sullen air, and if they do not call the admonition a scolding, on account of the kind and gentle tones in which it is delivered, they will be very apt to consider it much in that light. Suppose, however, that, instead of dealing with the case in this manner of fact and naked way, the teacher calls the imagination of the children to her aid, and administers her admonition and reproof indirectly through the dolls. She takes the dolls in her hand, asks their their names, and inquires which of the two girls is the mother of each. The dolls' names are Bella and Araminta, and the mothers are Lucy and Mary. But I might have asked Araminta herself, she adds, and, so saying, she holds the doll before her, and enters into a long, imaginary conversation with her, more or less spirited and original, according to the talent and ingenuity of the young lady. But, in any conceivable case, enough so to completely absorb the attention of the children and fully to occupy their minds. She asks each of them her name, and inquires of each which of the girls is her mother, and makes first one of them, and then the other, point to her mother in giving her answer. By this time the illusion is completely established in the children's minds of regarding their dolls as living beings, responsible to mothers for their conduct and behavior, and the young lady can go on and give her admonitions and instructions in respect to the sin and folly of quarrelling to them the children listening and it will be found that by this management the impression upon the minds of the children will be far greater and more effective than if the counsels were addressed directly to them while at the same time though they may even take the form of very severe reproof they will produce no sullenness or vexation in the minds of those for whom they are really intended. Indeed, the very reason why the admonition thus given will be so much more effective is the fact that it does not tend in any degree to awaken resentment and vexation, but associates the lesson which the teacher wishes to convey with amusement and pleasure. You are very pretty, she says, we will suppose addressing the dolls, and you look very amiable. I suppose you are very amiable. Then, turning to the children, she asks in a confidential undertone, Do they ever get into disputes and quarrels? Sometimes, says one of the children, entering at once into the idea of the teacher. Ah! the teacher exclaims, turning again to the dolls. I hear that you dispute and quarrel sometimes, and I am very sorry for it. That is very foolish. It is only silly little children that we expect will dispute and quarrel. I should not have supposed it possible in the case of such young ladies as you. It is a great deal better to be yielding and kind. If one of you says something that the other thinks is not true, let it pass without contradiction. It is foolish to dispute about it. And so, if one has anything that the other wants, it is generally much better to wait for it than to quarrel. It is hateful to quarrel. Besides, it spoils your beauty. When children are quarrelling, they look like little furries. 
the teacher may go on in this way and give a long moral lecture to the dolls in a tone of mock gravity and the children will listen to it with the most profound attention and it will have a far greater influence upon them than the same admonitions addressed directly to them so effectually in fact will this element of play in the transaction open their hearts to the reception of good counsel that even direct admonitions to them will be admitted with it if the same guise is maintained for the teacher may add in conclusion addressing now the children themselves with the same mock solemnity that is a very bad fault of your children very bad indeed and it is one that you will find very hard to correct you must give them a great deal of good counsel on the subject and above all you must be careful to set them a good example yourselves children always imitate what they see in their mothers whether it is good or bad if you are always amiable and kind to one another they will be so too the thoughtful mother in following out the suggestions here given will see at once how the interest which the children take in their dolls and the sense of reality which they feel in respect to all their dealings with them opens before her a boundless field in respect to modes of reaching and influencing their minds and hearts the ball itself made to teach carefulness there's literally no end to the modes by which persons having the charge of young children can avail themselves of their vivid imaginative powers in inculcating moral lessons or influencing their conduct a boy we will suppose has a new ball just as he is going out to play with it his father takes it from him to examine it and after turning it round and looking at it attentively on every side holds it up to his ear the boy asks what his father is doing i am listening to hear what he says and what does he say father he says that you won't have him to play with long why not i will ask him why not holding the ball again to his ear what does he say father he says he is going to run away from you and hide he says you will go to play near some building and he means when you throw him or knock him to fly against the window and break the glass and then people will take your ball away from you but i won't play near any windows he says at any rate you will play near some building and when you knock him he means to fly up to the roof and get behind a chimney or roll down into the gutter where you can't get him but father i am not going to play near any building at all then you will play in some place where there are holes in the ground or thickets or bushes near where he can hide no father i mean to look well over the crown and not play in any place where there is any danger at all well we shall see but the little rogue is determined to hide somewhere the boy takes his ball and goes out to play with it far more effectually cautioned than he could have been by any direct admonition the teacher and the tough logs a teacher who was engaged in a district school in the country where the arrangement was for the older boys to saw and split the wood for the fire on coming one day at the recess 
to see how the work was going on, found that the boys had laid one rather hard-looking log aside. They could not split that log, they said. Yes, said the teacher, looking at the log. I don't wonder. I know that log. I saw him before. His name is Old Gnarly. He says he has no idea of coming open of a parcel of boys, even if they have got beetle and wedges. It takes a man, he says, to split him. The boys stood looking at the log with a very grave expression of countenance as they heard these words. "'Is that what he says?' asks one of them. "'Let's try him again, Joe.' "'It will do no good,' said the teacher, "'for he won't come open, if he can possibly help it. And there's another fellow, pointing. His name is Slivertwist. If you get a crack in him, you will find him full of twisted splinters that he holds himself together with. The only way is to cut them through with a sharp axe, but he holds on so tight with them that I don't believe you can get him open. He says he never gives up to boys. So saying, the teacher went away. It is scarcely necessary to say to any one who knows boys that the teacher was called out not long afterwards to see that old gnarly and old sliver twist were both split up fine the boys standing around the heaps of well-prepared firewood which they had afforded and regarding them with an air of exultation and triumph muscles reinvigorated through the action of the mind an older sister has been taking a walk with little johnny four years old as her companion on their return when within half a mile of home Johnny, tired of gathering flowers and chasing butterflies, comes to his sister with a fatigued and languid air, and says he cannot walk any further. He wants to be carried. "'I can't carry you very well,' she says. "'But I will tell you what we will do. We will stop at the first tavern we come to and rest. Do you see that large float stone out there at the turn of the road?' "'That is the tavern.' and you shall be my courier a courier is a man that goes forward as fast as he can on his horse and tells the tavern-keeper that the traveller is coming and orders supper so you may gallop on as fast as you can go and when you get to the tavern tell the tavern-keeper that the princess is coming i am the princess and that he must get ready an excellent supper the boy will gallop on and wait at the stone when his sister arrives, she may sit and rest with him a moment, entertaining him by imagining conversations with the innkeeper, and then resume their walk. Now, she may say, I must send my courier to the post-office with a letter. Do you see that fence away forward? That fence is the post-office. We will play that one of the cracks between the boards is the letter-box. Take this letter handing him any little scrap of paper which she has taken from her pocket and folded to represent a letter, and put it in a letter-box, and speak to the postmaster through the crack, and tell him to send the letter as soon as he can. Under such management as this, unless this child's exhaustion is very great, his sense of it will disappear, and he will accomplish the walk not only without any more complaining, but with a great feeling of pleasure. The nature of the action in such a case seems to be that the vital force, when, in its direct and ordinary passage to the muscles through the nerves, it has exhausted the resources of that mode of transmission, 
receives in some mysterious way a reinforcement to its strength in passing round by a new channel through the organs of intelligence and imagination these trivial instances are only given as examples to show how infinitely varied are the applications which may be made of this principle of appealing to the imagination of children and what a variety of effects may be produced through its instrumentality by a parent or teacher who once takes pains to make himself possessed of it but each one must make himself possessed of it by his own practice and experience no general instruction can do anything more than to offer the suggestion and to show how a beginning is to be made end of section twenty